Hello again, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Kid Kong at the Movies. I am your host, once again, the one and only Kid Kong. So, I told y'all last week, when I did Prince of Egypt, that I wasn't 100% sure what my next episode would be. Well, I figured it out within about two hours of it posting. Uh, and I'm going to explain a little bit, because I'm not doing in what I normally do here. Today we're going to be talking about the 1986 fantastic sequel to the original. We're going to be talking about Aliens. Aliens, of course, is directed by James Cameron, who actually also helped write the story, and I will get to into that quite a bit. James Cameron, my goodness, that man, he has done two of the highest grossing films of all time. And at various points, both films were the highest grossing of all time. He's done the Terminator franchise, The Abyss, True Lies, Titanic, and of course, Avatar, while also producing a lot of uh, Disney documentary, like nature-style documentary shows, things like that. The other two writers were David Jyler, who passed away just last year, in 2020, actually. Now, David is probably best well-known for the original fun with Dick and Jane, but he's also done Southern Comfort, Alien 3, and the 2002 boxing prison movie, Undisputed. He was also a producer on the... He was also a producer, I'm sorry, on the original Alien, as well as AVP and AVP Requiem. The other writers, Walter Hill. Walter Hill also worked on Undisputed with David Jowler, but in addition to that, he's done The Warriors, 48 Hours, and another 48 Hours, Bullet to the Head, and Southern Comfort. Producer Galen Hurd. Now, you've heard me say that name before because Galen Hurd was one of the producers for the Tremors franchise. Well, she uh, she was married to James Cameron, so she did a lot of the same movies he did. Terminators 1 and 2, of course, she did Tremors. The Ghost in the Darkness, Dante's Peak, Armageddon, Ang Lee's Hulk from 2003, The Punisher, The Incredible Hulk, Aeon Flux, and just a, a whole slew of others that I'm just not going to get into. Aliens was done on a budget of $18.5 million, and its box office is between $131 and $183 million. And I'm going to explain that a little bit later on. Now, of course, the reason why I decided to go ahead and do Aliens before covering Alien is that I actually saw Aliens before I ever saw Alien. I was a, a little lost the first time I saw it. However, they do a, a fairly decent job on exposition, so I was able to pretty much piece it together in my head. Plus, while I would love nothing more than to go through the production on Alien, I actually want to do that movie as one of my rewind reviews. And I'm actually going to have a guest for that. So that, that one will eventually be covered. The sequel to Alien had a tremendous impact. Tremendous impact on the sci-fi genre going forward as a whole. Basically... The premise of the first movie was that the Federation ship, the Nostromo, you know, on orders from the Wayland Corporation, went to a planet, investigated a derelict spaceship, a face hugger attached to one of the members of the crew, hatched out, and a xenomorph killed the entire crew until all that was left was Ellen Ripley, and of course, she blew it out the airlock. The movie was made in 1979. The sequel that came out in 1986, which is what we're talking about today, basically the premise of that is that Ripley is found adrift in space by a salvage crew that brings her in, and she's told that she's been under for 57 years. 
That planet that they went to in the first movie now has a colony on it with colonists. Of course, the colonists eventually find the aliens and all hell breaks loose and Ripley has to go to the planet with a uh, colonial marine regiment to try and... The idea was originally to try and see if they could save anybody, but then, of course, it became, you know, can't let this infestation get out. Company always has its own little nuances of what it wants to do. It's it's a fantastic movie. So let's go ahead and jump in with the cast here. Ellen Ripley, the main character, the lead heroine, the ultimate protagonist of the Alien franchise, is, of course, portrayed by Sigourney Weaver, who was in four different Alien movies as Ellen Ripley. Well, three and one as a clone, but I digress. Um, of course, Sigourney Weaver has been in a lot of films. Ghostbusters, Dave, Galaxy Quest, Gorillas in the Mist, where she played Diane Fossey. She's in Heartbreakers, Holes, The Village, Avatar, Exodus. Funny little connected last week. Uh-huh. While also providing a voice in Wally. I could go on for a while on Sigourney Weaver. One little thing I found out while researching this movie is that Sigourney Weaver's first name is actually Susan, which that was a little like a well, I've been lied to my entire life kind of thing. <laughs> Corporal Hicks was played by Michael Bean. Michael Bean was in Terminator as Kyle Reese. Now, he did briefly reprise the role in Terminator 2, but that's in the extended edition. In addition to that, he's, of course, been in Tombstone, The Rock, Clockstoppers, and Grindhouse's Planet Terror. Whereas, television-wise, he's appeared in episodes of Logan's Run, Adventure Inc., 24-Hour Rental, and The Mandalorian. Carter J. Burke... The company representative that goes with the Marines was played by Paul Reiser. Now, Paul Reiser has not had a whole lot of films to his record. I mean, he was he had bit parts in Beverly Hills Cop 1 and 2, while also appearing in Concussion, Whiplash, and The Story of Us. You are probably going to best recognize him for his role in Mad About You, where he was the main character. He was Helen Hunt's husband. I'm so sorry that I can't think of his name right off the top of my head, but it's unimportant. The android Bishop is played by Lance Hendrickson. Now, Lance Hendrickson is like sci-fi slash horror movie royalty, okay? He has appeared in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Terminator, Pumpkinhead, Delta Heat, but he's also appeared in AVP, Scream 3. He provided the voice of Kerchak, Tarzan's adoptive gorilla father in Disney's Tarzan, Powder, and he was uncredited for his role in Super Mario Brothers as the King of the Mushroom Kingdom. Bill Paxton played Hudson. Now, of course, Bill Paxton passed away quite suddenly in 2017. Bill Paxton, my goodness. Weird Science, Predator 2, Mighty Joe Young, Twister, The Terminator, The Last Supper, which is a fantastic movie, Titanic, Apollo 13. Television-wise, he was on Big Love for all four seasons. He was a the main character of that. Vasquez was played by Jeanette Goldstein, and I will explain that a little bit detail later on. Jeanette Goldstein, of course, has appeared in Terminator 2, where she played John Connor's foster mom, Lethal Weapon 2, Near Dark, Titanic. She was in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Character of Drake, another Marine, was played by Mark Rolston. Rolston was in Lethal Weapon 2, Perry Mason. He was in Robocop, The Shawshank Redemption, Eraser, Hard Rain. He appeared in Rush Hour. He appeared in multiple films in the Saw franchise, and he was also in The Departed. Before I go any further, I'm going to go ahead and tell you that a lot of these characters have appeared in other movies together, so I will be repeating myself a little bit. Private Frost was played by Rico Ross, who was in Death Wish 3, Spies Like Us, Caruso, Mission Impossible, and Wishmaster. Now, he was originally going to be in Full Metal Jacket, but with how 
iffy it was on whether or not he was going to get to be in that because Kubrick was notoriously difficult to deal with. He went ahead and went with James Cameron for Aliens, which is not... That's trading one dictator for another. Spunk Meyer was played by Daniel Cash. Daniel Cash was in Exit Wounds, Don't Say a Word, Repo Man, Cold Creek Manor, tu The Tuxedo, he was in Cinderella Man, Diary of the Dead, the 2014 Robocop. Robert Crowe was played by Tip Tipping, who passed away in 1993. Tip Tipping was in Death Wish 3, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Batman 1989, Blue Ice, and Return to Oz, where he did stunt work in that. That was actually what was his final film role. Wazowski was played by Trevor Steedman, who also passed away in 2016. Trevor Steedman was in Snatch, The Reckoning, and Dead Meat, and he died quite suddenly of a stroke while preparing for another movie. Sergeant Apone was played by Al Matthews, who passed away in 2018. This is how I know I'm getting old, when my favorite movie has a bunch of actors in it that passed away. Al Matthews, who died in 2018. Al Matthews was in Omen 3, Superman 3, The Fifth Element, Tomorrow Never Dies. And he also actually reprised his role as Apone in Colonial Marines, the video game. Now, Apone was a former member of the military and is not only key to helping the actors get in character as, as Marines, he's actually the inspiration for the character of Sergeant Johnson in the Halo franchise. Lieutenant Gorman was played by William Hope. Now, William Hope was in Poltergeist, The Saint, Scanners, Triple X, uh, Sherlock Holmes. He appeared in Captain America, The First Avenger, Hellraiser 2. Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow, and he is frequently appeared on little directed DVD movies for Thomas and his friends, Thomas the Train Engine Knight. Now, you're probably wondering why I did not name Newt while I was going through the cast. Now, the reason I didn't really name Newt is because Carrie Henn, who portrayed Newt, really hasn't done anything else in Hollywood at all. I think this was her only film role. And even with that being said, there's a bunch of other actors that I left out simply because their roles were only restored when you got the extended edition. Now, most notably of that was that Sigourney Weaver's own mother appeared as a, in a photograph as Ripley's elderly daughter, Amanda, because in an extra scene in the extended edition, she finds out that her daughter passed away. Of course, she was stuck for 57, she was frozen for 57 years, so that's going to happen. Saddle up, boys and girls, because production and everything else that went with this was hell. Look, I take notes for all of my episodes that I have done. On average, I have between six and eight pages of notes. I have 21 pages of notes for this film, and those 21 pages worth of notes, the last four or five pages worth are bullet points, and I remember what I'm supposed to talk to about, talk with about them. So if I were to try and write my notes out a little bit better, I don't want to say in a script format, but that's probably the easiest way to understand it. There's no telling how long it would have been. This is probably going to be my longest episode, honestly, as an individual. So, following the success of the first film in 1979, they really badly wanted a sequel. Like, it was eagerly anticipated. But it took seven years to happen. Now, the reason why was that while 20th Century Fox's head at the time of the first movie really wanted a sequel, he left before it could happen. His replacement was Norman Levy, who was reportedly, and now it's key that I say disputedly here because he himself has disputed this, but he was reportedly completely uninterested in making a sequel as he was concerned it would be a disaster and that the success of the first film was, as it were, a fluke. Yes, he thought that the first Alien film was a fluke for how successful it was. He didn't think that the type of movie that it was going to be was just, he, he, it wouldn't appeal to the audiences again. He's like, you did it once, that's fine. You're not going to be able to pull it off a second time. 
The co-founders of the Brandywine production, which is actually the production company that did the first film, sued Fox over this and for unpaid profits from the film. They used Hollywood accounting, and I will explain what Hollywood accounting is at some point on my shows, simply because I do want to go into more of a detailed perspective on that, to show that the film was a financial loss. Yes, it was produced on a budget of $7 million, made well over $100 million at the box office, but they were able to claim it as a loss. The lawsuit was settled, fortunately, in 1983 out of court for an undisclosed sum, which is rumored to be in the mid, mid to low six figures. So they were able to get that taken care of, and one of the, the aspects that went along with that settlement was that Fox would help finance the development, but they were not required to distribute the film. At this point, Fox had a new head. Joe Wisen. He was very open to the sequel, but a lot of the other executives that were at Fox were pretty non-committal to it. And, you know, he began looking for a scriptwriter by mid-1983, hoping that they could get it done and get it off the ground. He came across the script for The Terminator at the time when he was looking for a scriptwriter. Considering the efforts and success for Rambo 2, because James Cameron helped work with that, James Cameron's script was shown to the executives. By which point they're like, okay, you know, Cameron's script for the Terminator, this is really good. Is there any way you can make like a storyboard or just a basic script for this? By November of that year, James Cameron had made a 42-page treatment for Alien 2. He wrote it in three days and titled it Ripley and the Soldiers. He got a pretty mixed reaction from the studio. One studio member was quoted as saying that it is a constant stream of horror without a trace of character development. They couldn't agree. Some of them wanted to go through with it. Others did not. And eventually they decided they were going to go ahead and negotiate with other studios to try and sell the rights. These negotiations failed and the project was stalled once again. So if you're keeping track here, that's they wanted to go through with it in 1980. Passed on it. 82 passed on it. 83, they finally get a little bit of interest, passed on it, and negotiations failed, and it was stalled once again. By July of 1984, the new head of Fox, Lawrence Gordon, and perhaps you're noticing a little bit of a pattern here with Fox Studios in their heads, took over and felt that with what few projects were in development at that time, Gordon found the treatment for Alien 2, Ripley and the Soldiers. He was shocked that nobody had pursued it because he, to him, it was great. You know, and he wanted to go ahead and get a little bit more of a detailed treatment written out for it. Now, Arnold Schwarzenegger was dealing with obligations for Conan the Destroyer. Because of that, the Terminator was delayed for nine months. That nine-month period, James Cameron used his time to expand his treatment to 90 pages. The, his new version, when presented to the executives was far better received, and they're like, okay, they're very enthusiastic, let's go ahead and do this. Hold on a second, because James Cameron wants to direct. James Cameron, at this point, had only directed one feature film that had been released, Piranha 2. He was largely unknown, was thought to be very inexperienced, and thus the studio was very reluctant to hire him. What probably helped him on this was that The Terminator came out before Aliens did. Terminator was quite a success, and it, honestly, it was what was considered a sleeper success at the time. You know, the low expectations he had for Terminator allowed Cameron plenty of time to focus on 
writing and expanding and developing the treatment into an actual storyboard and script. He wanted Gayla and her to direct because she helped, or to, I'm sorry, to produce because she helped produce Terminator. Fox had a few concerns on it, but Cameron would not budge on that. Galen Hurd at the time, and he, he, the two of them were dating, engaged, whatever you want to call it. They were partners. Now, he was, according to James Cameron, he was advised not only not to have Galen Hurd as his producer, he was advised to walk away from the film, to not do it. Because it was felt that due to the sheer success of the first film, anything that was good from Aliens would be associated with Ridley Scott or would be like attributed to Ridley Scott. Whereas if anything bad about Aliens would be attributed to James Cameron. And to that end, Ridley Scott openly claimed that he was not offered to direct the film. Reportedly, Ridley Scott can be a little difficult to deal with at times, which the hell you say. When it came time for the title of the film, because they obviously weren't going to go with Alien 2, Ripley and the Soldiers, James Cameron, on a whiteboard, wrote the name Alien. And then, instead of an S, he used a dollar sign. The idea and impact behind that, not impact, uh, what's the word, insinuation there being that Aliens was essentially a license to print money. You know, he turned in his finished script in 1985, February, I think about three hours before the 85 writer's strike happened in Hollywood. The new Fox uh, chair, Barry Diller, did not like the budget. The script itself was well received, but he really didn't feel like the budget was very good. Fox established that it was going to cost about $35.5 million to make. Galen Hurd tried to assuage their fears by going, no, 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 look, we do this, this, and this, and we're going to be able to come out with a $15.5 million budget, which is substantially less. I mean, it's still more than double the budget for the initial Alien movie. But most of the time when you go with a sequel, you do tend to go a little bit bigger. Diller countered that with a 10 to $12 million offer. So, James Cameron and Hurd quit. Yes, that's right. James Cameron and Gail Ann Hurd quit. Uh, as you can understand, that was a nightmare. An absolute nightmare. They, they, they simply could not allow that to, to happen. Lawrence Gordon negotiated with Diller strenuously, and eventually Diller did relent, and Galen Hurd and James Cameron did return. Another issue arised in April of 85. Fox didn't want Sigourney Weaver to come back. That's right. Sigourney Weaver, who played Ellen Ripley, the key character in Alien, to come back. They were concerned that she would demand too high of a salary, and that it could potentially lead to issues further down the road with other films that they're trying to make who might share an agent with Sigourney Weaver. Cameron insisted. You know, he, he's like, no, you have to have Ripley in this film. There's no two ways about it. And you can't recast an iconic character like this. Fox continued to refuse, worried that the negotiating power of the studio would just be too damaged from it. So Cameron and Herb quit again. They left, got married, and went on their honeymoon. James Cameron quite literally threw a fit and quit twice, at the very least, about this film. He may have actually quit a third time. I'm not 100% sure. You know, 
because he wasn't being get, given his way. By the time they got back from their honeymoon, the studio had greenlit aliens and had told them, look, we're going to go ahead and hire Sigourney Weaver. If it weren't for Gail and Hurd, as far as James Cameron is concerned, it wouldn't have gone forward. So, funny enough, Cameron, after seeing the first film, now look, okay, so let me give you a little bit of background on James Cameron. Anything you can do on a movie, whether it's editing, sound, directing, producing, grips, oh, building sets, James Cameron can do it. The man is a perfectionist. The man's a genius, but he's a perfectionist. Before he really got into, into directing, he was a truck driver. A cross-country truck driver. While he was doing this, he had seen the original Alien in a movie theater. He thought it was a perfect film that needed no sequel. He was concerned that the emotional weight of the first film could not be replicated. And that's why the way he wrote his script out and it got accepted, he combined the horror aspect of the first movie with the sheer action roller coaster aspects of the Terminator. You know, James Cameron was always good at writing for female leads because if you watch the Terminator, you take a character in Sarah Connor, who at the beginning of Terminator is seemingly ditzy and helpless and needs help to do everything. By the end of the movie, she has naturally progressed as a strong, independent female lead. He did the same thing with Ellen Ripley in this. Because while she was a capable military character-ish military character in the first film, she really comes into her own in the second one even more so. You know, you combine that with the fact that he always wanted to make a movie about outer space and about military and outer space, and it just it made perfect sense for James Cameron to be attached. And I will get a little bit further in, further in detail about his issues with the crew and the cast as we go. Now, what's funny about all this, about James Cameron and Hurd quitting if they couldn't have Sigourney Weaver, saying they didn't want to write Ellen Ripley out, uh, over the years, Sigourney Weaver had repeatedly refused to return for any kind of sequel. She rejected multiple offers because, you know, her biggest concern is that the film was only going to be made for financial reasons basically shelling out a sequel just to try and capitalize on the first and make as much money as they could out of that. She was worried that they had no concern for story, character development, and for the sheer impact of the Ellen Ripley character. After reading James Cameron's final draft, she was still only mildly interested. Like, a, like a, I don't know if I really want to do this, you know. Reportedly, she also wanted a million dollars and a portion of the box office percentage which would have been her biggest payday up to date at this time in her career. Negotiations took so long with this that Cameron and Hurd pulled a dirty little trick here. <laughs> they casually mentioned to Arnold Schwarzenegger's agent that they were planning on riding Ripley out altogether. They did this because they knew word would travel. And it did. And terms were shortly after reached with Sigourney Weaver able to come back. Sneaky, 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 James Cameron. They deliberately wanted an unknown for Newt, saw thousands of girls, and eventually found Carrie Hen, 
And while she had no experience, she was felt to have a very reactive and responsive face and eyes and facial expressions. And they felt that, okay, that's, that's, that's perfect. We found our newt. Hicks was originally cast James Remar. You might re uh, recognize James Remar's name uh, from our Mortal Kombat podcast episode that I did with Cal the Kaiju guy because we do mention that James Remar takes Christopher Lambert's place as Raiden in that. Um, he's appeared in Terminator. You know, he was in Dexter where he played Dexter Morgan's father, Harry Morgan, which is probably where I best recognize James Remar from. Love the guy. He's a fantastic actor. You know, he went through all the training necessary, virtually all the preparation, and even began to film before he was suddenly fired and replaced. Now, there were a lot of disputing reasons as to why he was fired and replaced. Some have claimed he quit for personal reasons. Others claim that he quit for scheduling reasons. Still others claim that he was fired for being difficult to work with. James Remar himself has cleared that up and stated that he was fired because shortly after filming began... He was arrested for drug possession. Considering the impact this movie had, I don't know if it would have turned out quite the same if it hadn't have been Michael Bean in that role. So, there's no way to really know if James Remar would have been a better Hicks than Michael Bean. So, uh, Bill Paxton ran into James Cameron at LAX and casually mentioned that he was interested in a role. What helped him was not that. What helped him was his turn in Weird Science. Cameron rewrote the character to better suit Paxton's talent. He wanted to make him good comic relief for tense moments. And as I will get to later, he did so because Bill Paxton has some decent improvisational chops and he allowed his characters to ad-lib while on set. Lance Henderson was really worried about taking this role as Bishop one, because he didn't want to be compared to Ian Holmes' role as the android Ash in the original, but two, because Rucker Hauer had only recently been an artificial human in Blade Runner. In order to differentiate from that and not want to portray like a sinister or robotic type character in any way, he played Bishop from the perspective as an innocent child. You know, Paul Razor was a chance casting in this one because while he had had some small parts in Beverly Hills Cop, he really hadn't done a whole lot. The Colonial Marine actors were a combination of British and American actors who went through three weeks of a quote-unquote basic version of basic training under Al Matthews, the actor that played Apone, and also working with British Special Air Sar uh, Services workers. Funny enough, after that three weeks period was over, Michael Bean was cast as the replacement for James Remar for the role of Hicks. With Matthews being a Vietnam War vet and having worked as a drill sergeant and this British Special Air Service is being used, uh, they were able to, over a three-week period, do a, a really good job here. Matthews had to train them how to hold their guns and to stand. And the reason he had to do that, to tell them how to hold their guns, is because the guns all had blanks in them. Folks, blanks are still dangerous. You know, while it was an actual bullet that did the job, Blanks are, are one of the reasons why the bullet went off that killed Brandon Lee in The Crow. So, uh, one of the problems that Bean had because of this was that missing the training, he didn't get to build that camaraderie that quite as well. He also didn't get to customize his own armor as everybody else did. He had to use uh, James Remar's armor. 
they wanted to try and... Okay, so by having them go through this basic training aspect thing, they built up a sense of camaraderie and unity with the Colonial Marine. This also, in turn, strengthened their... I don't want to say disdain, but their kind of disdainful look at Ripley, Riser. Like, you guys are outsiders. You know, you're not soldiers. You're not with us. You know what I mean? Uh, Cameron created detailed backstories for every single Marine. Went through every, went through with every single one of those actors and went into detail on that. And he even had all of them read Starship Troopers. The book of Starship Troopers is nothing like the film. I've read the book. The book is considered standard reading, I want to say, for naval or marine recruits. One of the two. If I'm wrong on that, I truly apologize. But that's what I, I want to believe that's what that was. Now, Jeanette Goldstein. She'd been out of work and going to the gym, so she was already really in shape, and that's one of the things that helped her get the role as Vasquez. Look, you know, she... Goldstein is a white, mixed actress who is of Jewish ancestry, playing a Latina character. To do so, she wore dark contact lenses to make her eyes brown. She went through about an hour's worth of makeup every day to appear more, I hate to say, brown-skinned, but to hide her freckles and make her look more Hispanic. You know, she studied gang interviews to help with her accent and actually had grown up in East L.A., which probably translated to that as well. Funny enough, there seems to be no outcry or issues with that. Could you do that today? Absolutely not. Not without complaint. Mark Rolston misled filmmakers about his acting prominence to get the role of Drake. He had been in a film with Al Pacino immediately preceding this film. He told the casting directors he was the second most prominent actor on that film next to Al Pacino. He was not. But, this is in the early 80s, Internet's not a thing. IMDb certainly is not a thing. you got to go by word of mouth, and rather than take a long chain to figure this out, they're like, yeah, go ahead. William Hope was cast as Gorman, and then the character was rewritten. Uh, I think that was probably done to try and make Gorman look a little more inept, because he's in the film, he's a lieutenant, a new lieutenant, who has done 37 drops from a dropship. All of which were you know, simulation. Two, live drops, if you count the drop he does in the film itself. All the soldier actors got to stay at the Holiday Inn and developed, you know, real lasting friendships here. Like Michael Bean and Bill Paxton hung out together on set a lot of the time and stayed in contact, I want to say, until Bill Paxton's death. When it came time to film this role, or this film, rather, you know, nothing's easy with James Cameron. And where they were filming it in England, James Remar accidentally shot a hole through the wall of the Little Shop of Horrors set, which was being filmed next door. Hence why, you know, Al Matthews was very necessary to teach them how to stand. If somebody else had been standing there and gotten shot, it would have been a little different than just a hole in the wall. Filming began on September 85 with a 75-day schedule Again, they got about an $18.5 million budget when you include advertisement. Primarily, filming was done in Buckinghamshire due to the large sets and the relatively lower cost of filming in England. 
filming was rough, y'all. Uh, James Cameron is unfamiliar with British customs, including tea breaks, which would literally last an hour or so every single day, and he lost hours of filming time. He didn't like the laid-back attitudes of the British crews, and he was called aggressive by them, and he also pissed a lot of them off by deliberately using non-union crew to help the union crew. And, you know, trust me, this disdain was mutual. The crew was dismissive due to Cameron's relative inexperience. They felt that Gail Ann Hurd only had her job because she was married to Cameron. You know, James Cameron wanted dark lighting in the hive. The original cinematographer insisted it be brighter. That clash, he was re replaced and he was dismissed and replaced with the first assistant. <laughs> Sorry. He was replaced. The first assistant director also repeatedly ignored James Cameron's request. The situation began deteriorating so badly that James Cameron and Heard fired him on the spot, and midday of, sh of shooting, the crew walked out. It was got it got bad. Uh, Cameron wanted to move completely out of England and go film back in the states. Galen Heard convinced him otherwise. You know, there were too many other films going on that were being made at that time, and as such. The crew really could not be easily changed. So, James Cameron and Gail Ann Hurd sat the entire crew down to meet about it. And after a lot of talk, back and forth, cajoling, pleading, threatening, whatever you want to call it, the crew agreed that they would support Cameron unquestionably if he would support their working hours, which included their tea breaks. The decision was agreed upon. But it doesn't mean that James Cameron liked the crew. He called them lazy, insolent, arrogant. And I am going to paraphrase a quote here. But he was very glad to leave knowing that they would be staying when filming was done. And that he would never have to see them again. Even Bill Paxton said that the film crew was a little too relaxed. But their work was impeccable. He had no complaints. To film the hive scene... They used a decommissioned power plant, and what they built in that plant remained there until Batman was filmed in 1989 in the same plant. During the filming of the dropship, when the dropship's coming down, the roof collapsed on the cast and crew. Nobody was seriously injured, but James Cameron did get a pretty decent-sized gash on top of his head due to that tight budget that they were given. Some scenes were cut, and... Gail Ann Hurd actually convinced James Cameron to pay for the laser cutting scene himself when they're cutting Ripley out of her sleeping pod. Ah, uh, there's a fun one. Bill Paxton was unaware that he was going to be used, his hand rather, in the knife trick scene with Bishop until it happened. He did get a little nicked, but that was a genuine look of fear on his face and a genuine reaction as Lance Hendrickson did that. Lance Henriksen is actually a skilled practitioner of that particular knife trick, stabbing around the fingers and avoiding your hand. They did... <laughs> Films are rarely filmed in chronological order, and this film is a perfect example as to why. The character-establishing scenes for all the soldiers 
were done on the tail end of filming because by that point in time, they had been living in the same hotel around each other every single day for 70 days. Their bond was much stronger and much more believable as a unit of soldiers who had been together a lot. And like I said earlier, James Cameron really encouraged the improv. Uh, the game over man line, the historic, iconic, that's it, game over man, game over from Paxton was ad-libbed. Paxton was initially slated to say, that's it, man, it's over, it's done with. But because of his backstory that he'd been given for Hudson, Hudson had been trained predominantly in a simulator, whether he was awake or asleep. So naturally, when you lose in a simulator, you get game over. So he said, game over, man, game over. He didn't like the idea because he was concerned that his character would come across as too annoying or too plucky at times. Once he figured out that he was the comic relief for the really tense and scary scenes, it got a little bit better. Uh, the iconic get away from her, you bitch line that Ripley gives as she is walking towards the queen in the loading unit was filmed in one take. They were really crunched for time at this point, and because she could not hear herself when she said it, she wanted, Sigourney Weaver wanted to do it again. She was worried that it didn't sound good. I think it sounded just fine. Uh, Carrie Henn, of course, was not scared of the aliens because the people that were in the alien suits were nice. She was quite fond of them. To help her, she would pretend that the aliens were dogs that were chasing her. The crew got in on it, and the people that were in the suits would growl and bark at her as they chased her to try and help her think of them as dogs, and she was, they were able to edit those out later on. Over the course of the 75 days of filming, you know, Sigourney Weaver and Bill Paxton spent a lot of time with Carrie Henn. They would sit there and draw with her, do arts and crafts, things like that. You know, they... They established friendships with this little girl. Carrie Han kept in contact with Bill Paxton until his death and is still in contact with Sigourney Weaver to this day. Y'all, 1986 was 35 years ago that this film came out. 35 years and they have maintained contact with one another. As I mentioned earlier, my, uh, Michael Bean and Bill Paxton spent a lot of their downtime together and became real friends that stayed in contact again till Bill Paxton's death. When they wrapped filming, Weaver gave flowers to all the actors. Now, what's funny about that is that she gave flowers to all the actors for the soldiers on the days that their death scenes were filmed. Paul Reiser got a bouquet of dead flowers for the day that Carter Burke's death scene was filmed. That's just a lovely little nod and a little touch that she get on that. All the difficulties they had, and I'm going to get to more of them when it comes time for the effects despite all these difficulties despite you know the crew revolting james cameron's issues everything that was going james remar being fired all that did not matter the film was still done and turned in on time and on budget when it came time for the post-production ray lovejoy edited it um a lot of scenes got removed now, a lot of these scenes were returned in the extended editions, but Ripley's daughter and Carter Burke being cocooned and begging for his death, as well as the colonists established at the beginning and Newt's family, 
All those scenes, it was thought that it ruined the pacing and sense of mystery that the film had. So, that was the reason given from Red Lovejoy when he was editing and cutting these out. The real reason would come out a decade later. These cuts were done to trim the film down so that you could show the film more times in a single day and thus allow more showings and more money to be made. James Horner collaborated with James Cameron for the music on this, and he called it a nightmare. He was only given three weeks instead of six to, to compose the score, because when he got there, he figured he would have six weeks to do so. No, no. Filming wasn't done yet. Editing wasn't done yet. He was given three weeks to do so. And the music that he would present to James Cameron, Cameron, because he can do everything, was chopping it up, putting bits and pieces here and there, moving it around. He used music from other films, and other movies took pieces of the score of Aliens and were used in them. It was such a problem, James Horner refused to work with James Cameron ever again. And he didn't, for a long time. Multiple movies that were made, he was offered to work with James Cameron, did not want to do it, until Titanic. Titanic was so nightmarish for him, for the same reason, he did not work with James Cameron again until Avatar. So he literally went 12 years between this movie, or 13 actually, because it was done in 85, 13 years from when Aliens was filmed to when Titanic was filmed, and then a further 13 years from when Titanic was filmed to when Avatar was filmed, of not wanting to work with James Cameron. Stan Winston Studios and the Los Angeles Effects Group helped to make a lot of the miniatures, the suits, the hydraulics, the sets for the drop set for the drop ship, the sets for the hive, everything. And the reason that Cameron went with them, because those were relatively small name studios at the time, he wanted to, one, avoid contractors that would have issue with his very hands-on approach. And two, you know, he, he felt that he Basically, he didn't know people. <laughs> that when you come down, when it comes down to it, he had limited contacts, and because of that, he didn't have contacts in the bigger names, and had to do so. He also deliberately chose to avoid most of the production crew that made the first film, largely because he was concerned they would be too loyal to Ridley Scott. Sid Mead, which is a brilliant, brilliant miniature and set designer built the Sulaco to look like a freighter. Now, the Sulaco, of course, is the ship that the Marines and everybody go to the planet in. And he wanted to look like a freighter. It had loading doors, cranes, weapons for defense. He, he extensively designed the outside of this. He could only build four to six sleeping pods, however. There was more than four to six people that used those sleeping pods in the film. Mirrors? and light trickery were used to add a dimension and make it appear like there was a solid line of these pods opening up. So when you see the scene where the pods are lighting up and lifting up to open up and let everybody out, there's only four of those. They just use mirrors to make it look like there's a lot more. They made a life-size dropship and a smaller model as well. Most of the colony was a scale miniature. You know, they used a lot of forced perspective. Uh, Sigourney Weaver was dealing with obligations for another film that she had been dealing with at the time that they did the first 
sites of the alien nest and the alien hive. That's why she's not in there at first. That's why the car, you only ever see the vehicle bust through the wall. And while you do see the vehicle open, you see her. It's very, very limited scope to avoid that. The plant was also full of asbestos, the plant that they filmed the hive in. So they had to shut down filming for three weeks to clean it out, as well as three more weeks to create this alien set with fiberglass, clay, and vacuum casing. You know, the guns that they had weighed 65 to 70 pounds and were made from pieces of real guns, steady cam mounts, and motorcycle parts for customization. They were very difficult to take off and put on, so they just kept them on when not filming. Pulse rifle that you see is made from an old Tommy gun and a pump-action shotgun. Sigourney Weaver hates guns. She has campaigned against the NRA before. However, James Cameron convinced her to use them in the film as they are central to the aspect of Ripley's bonding and protecting Newt from the aliens. And I mentioned earlier that, that blanks were made used. Um, they had to make a dummy of Newt because Sigourney Weaver at the climax of the film, she, it, carrying her and the gun, it was too heavy. The flamethrowers were functional flamethrowers. The problem with that is that when they were using them in the hive, they began melting through some of the resin and clay aspects, which caused real difficulty breathing. Vasquez, at one point, the actress that played her, Jeanette Goldstein, is coughing and trying to breathe. Paxton stayed in character because he thought she was in character. It was only after a couple of minutes of her truly struggling to breathe that he realized, oh shit, we need to stop. The final explosion of the film, you know, they use a light bulb through cotton. Reebok made custom shoes for, El for Ellen Ripley's character for this film. Like, there's, there's so much that went into this that I honestly could have an episode solely on production and set designs. Like, I could really make a three-part episode about Aliens where I talk about the film, the filming. It, there's a lot that goes to it. So if I feel like I'm glossing over some things, I do apologize. When I eventually discuss Alien, I'm going to be joined by Cal the Kaiju Guy once again because he is the biggest Alien fan I know. Bar none. That man makes it a point to watch the Alien films on April 26th every year. Uh, the creature designs. Now, H.R. Geiger designed the creature for the first film. He was not involved, and he was not happy about not being involved with Aliens. You know, James Cameron and Stan Winston designed many of the suits themselves. The only ones that James Cameron really didn't have a lot of input on was the warrior aliens. Like, because you have warrior ants, soldier ants, rather, things like that. He wasn't involved in them because he didn't really care about those. The alien suits were, you know, they made a lot, they made 12 different suits. There were some that were lightweight to allow quick movement. These lightweight suits were simple black leotards with molded foam around the hands and heads for quick moving scenes. They had detailed models with articulation for their upper bodies, the mouths, the lips, the little mouths that pop out of the big mouths and everything. And the people that predominantly were in the suits were stuntmen. However, the lighter weight ones were done by dancers. You know, even though you see like 60, 70, 80 aliens in the course of this film, there were only 12 suits. A lot of this was miniatures, forced perspective, just everything they can to try and make you feel like there were more of them. Now, the alien blood, I'm not even going to attempt to, to read off 
what exactly the chemicals they use for it. The only things that I'm going to read off to you were yellow dye, acetic acid, and something else that they used. Stan Winston modified the chest bursters. You only see a couple of them to have little hands. The idea there being that, you know, it's a, a snake would have difficulty breaking through and crawling. However, the little hands, he'd be able to pull itself out of the body and get going. Now, when it came time for the Alien Queen, James Cameron designed and worked with Stan Winston, and they worked for weeks to design this Alien Queen. They had large puppets for hands and legs for the tail itself. They used some miniatures and some costumes, etc., but by and large, it was a 14-foot-tall puppet made out of lightweight foam. Two people would be inside controlling the arms. One person controlled the legs with the rods. They had another person controlling the tail. The head had servos and hydraulics in it and was extremely heavy. Four different people controlled this head. Two to support it and two to control. Altogether, eight to ten people controlled this thing at a time. You know, Winston Studio was unfamiliar with hydraulics, but because of the very essential nature of the hydraulics for the mouth, the lips, the hands, and everything, you know, compromises had to be made. Computer tech just didn't exist at this time in order to scale up the model. So it was done purely by sight. So they made a little six-foot model of what the Alien Queen was like and then scaled it up and eyeballed it to make it bigger. They built two different heads. The heavy-duty one would... Okay. When I say they built two different heads, both heads had all the servers, all the little electronics and everything in them, but one was built to be very lightweight for the faster movements, and even then they would film it and then speed up the filming. They made a heavy-duty one for damage, like when the Alien Queen at the end is fighting with Ripley in the loader suit. Uh, cables and hydraulics for the full articulation for everything. Like it, A lot went into making this mouth and head be able to move and the arms whip through the tail, whip through everything. You know, when it came time for the end scene where the alien queen's tail pierces Bishop once they get away from her back onto the ship and think that she's gone, they did that in two different ways. They had a chest plate with a rubber tail strapped to the front end of Lance Hendrickson that when pulled by a wire would pop through. They also had a dummy built of Lance Hendrickson for when the queen reached down to grab him and rip him in half. They had a solid tail to move up and lift up as well to make it appear like he's being lifted into the air by this tail to be ripped in half. The android blood was a combination of milk and yogurt. What's gross about that is that it took several days to film this. This stuff soured and because Henderson had to constantly put it in his mouth, spit it out, put it in his mouth, spit it out. He actually got food poisoning from it and then continued to do it anyway. I don't know about you guys, but when I have food poisoning, I don't feel like eating anything, let alone putting rotten milk in my mouth and spitting it back out. But the exosuit that Ripple uses, which you do see several times, once in the extended cut, where she's showing that she can use the extent the exosuit to move a box, was heavy and unwieldy. It was, oh man, it was just thick metal bars and wooden bars and everything. Two people had to operate this thing, the legs from behind, while Sigourney Weaver herself, or her stunt woman at times, were in this thing. 
when it came time for the fight between the exosuit and the queen, there's a real possibility of injury here. With the tail and the puppets and everything else moving through, you know, the fight had to be carefully choreographed and wires had to be hid for when the queen charges at her. You know, they use camera trickery to make it look quicker, miniatures with something called go motion to make it look blurry to try and hide imperfections and whatnot. You know, the, the effects were fantastic. And most of the people who viewed this film, they couldn't, they had no way of saying this looked bad or this looked, oh, you can't believe that kind of thing. It's astounding that a movie made in the 80s with practical effects holds up so well that you can't tell it's not CGI at times nowadays. Absolutely astounding. When it came time to release this film, there, were, there was a relative lack of big-name releases slated this year. And, you know, they didn't have a lot of big-name directors attached to films coming out. And with the summer season slated to start a little bit sooner, because summer was expected to be a little bit of a lesser time this year. I mean, a lot of that was down to the home videos being released. They, they felt that it was really hurting the summer blockbuster, so... While they thought it could be a sleeper hit due to word of mouth and advanced screenings being really well received and the blue collar workers being targeted, they didn't expect it to be as big as it was. You know, it's opening weekend. It debuted at number one and made $10 million at the box office July 18th. Wow. I did not mean to do that. This, film, this review will actually come out 35 years to the day after Aliens premiered in theaters. That's pretty funny. I did not mean for that to happen. This film was number one at the box office for one solid month. Four weeks. It was eventually beat by Fly, The Fly and Armed and Dangerous. Now, the box office on this film. I mentioned earlier that the box office was between 131 and 183 million. The reason why is that they don't really know the exact numbers for the box office. There was a lack of consistent figures for overseas release. And unfortunately, because this was years before the internet, years before IMDb and everything, there's just no way to know the exact amount. So most of the time they're like, okay, it's budget of 18 and a half million box office between 131 and 183 million. That is a success. <laughs> that is a box office success, no matter how you slice it. It was generally well-received. Uh, some, you know, it was felt to be a worthy successor. Some felt it to be a superior movie, but I'll get to that. Um, it was felt that the effects, thrills, and the scary scenes and the actions would help compensate for the, the relative lack of the novelty that made the first movie as successful as it was. You know, it was thought to be cleverly written and unironically funny. Uh, film critics Schickle and, uh, yeah, Schickle and Care, I'm sorry, felt that it was a rare sequel to surpass the original. Jay Scott felt that it combined Rambo with Star Wars and it was well. Now, Ebert and Siskel and Ebert, they didn't like it. <laughs> they felt that it was violent. It was a long, protracted attack on the senses. However, while they did not like the film, they could appreciate the craft of the filmmaking that was done on this set. The Orlando Sentinel called it the Jaws of the 80s, and by and large, the most well-received thing of it was Sigourney Weaver's run as Ellen Ripley. She was once again seen to be the 
ultimate adventurous heroine in film and was actually favorably compared to as a more, much more attractive Rocky or Rambo rather I'm sorry um, Michael Bean Jeanette Goldstein Lance Henriksen Carrie Han Paul Reiser all of them had very positive reception Mute, the music of the film was one of the things that was kind of eh on it like and that's because a lot of the music was reused in other films or was taken from earlier films. And it just, no. the effects, like I said, second to none. They felt that the, alien, the aliens moved in a very creepy manner and that the Queen was a, a wonderful addition at the end of it. When it came time for award season, this film won two Academy Awards. It won Academy Award for Best Sound Editing and Best Visual Effects while also being nominated for Best Actress for Sigourney Weaver, Best Art Director, and funny enough, Best Score despite the fact that it was very eh, received. It also got the Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation. The extended cut that came out was 20 minutes longer, and it came out se about several years later. This movie, toys, books, comics, clothing, merchandise, oh, tie all kinds of tie-ins. It was video games that eventually came out. The legacy that this film has left I don't have time to give justice to. You know, honestly, when I do my rewind review of Alien, I may go ahead and lump Aliens in with it so that Cal and I can talk about it in an extended fashion because it's it, it, the legacy this film left, the impact that it has had in cinema going forward, it, it cannot cannot be understated. And I don't want to do that because I don't want to do it a disservice. You know, the quotability of this film is off the charts. The so many different things. Like, okay, in 2008, Empire Magazine ranked it number 30 out of its top 500 films. That's ranking it ahead of the original. You know, the American Film Institute rated Ripley as number 8 on the 100 Years, 100 Heroes, and Villains. It's one of the best sequels of all time. I mean, Bill Paxton is one of the only character actors, for example, to be killed by an alien, a Terminator, and a Predator. You know, Michael Bean has lost roles because of this film, but only because of people wanting to avoid similarities. Like Avatar, James Cameron directed Avatar. Bean lost his role once they cast Sigourney Weaver because Cameron did not want comparisons to aliens. And a lot of the actors that were in this film showed such chemistry together that they were ultimately reprising their roles in other films. I, I, I said reprising their roles. That's not quite what I mean. Uh, you see them working together with others because of the chemistry that they showed. You know, they made a massive franchise out of this and honestly, the franchise that exists probably would not exist if, if it weren't for Aliens. In fact, I'll go one further and say that it flat out would not exist were it not for Aliens. We have gotten video games. We have gotten books. Um, we've gotten quite a few sequels. Alien 3, which I have a interesting history to that movie for myself. It completely undoes the aspect of Aliens for Newt and Ripley and for Ripley and Hicks. And as such, 
you know, the book franchise that has come out of it kind of disregards the two of them dying in Alien 3. You know, as an adult coming back to it later, I can appreciate Alien 3 better for what it is. Taking it as a sequel to Aliens, it's not as great. We got Alien Resurrection, which is a guilty pleasure movie of mine because it's a terrible Alien movie, but I do enjoy it. Um, we've also gotten the Alien vs. Predator movies out of this, which is one of the big things that Sigourney Weaver really did not want to happen, which is why she refused to return as Ripley anymore. AVP and AVP Requiem, of the two of those, I prefer Requiem, even though neither of them are particularly great. And then finally... After 20 years, we got a return to form. Prometheus was really good. Alien Covenant was spectacular. And I cannot wait for the next movie in this installment. Uh, I have multiple books. Funny enough, Cal the Kaiju Guy has given me multiple Aliens books that go along with this franchise. Like... Nightmare Asylum, Earth High. Uh, I, I love the books. I, I freaking love them. They are spectacular. The Female War. My goodness. The, I, could, I could do episodes just talking about the books. And one day, I probably will expand my podcasting and do other things like that. Uh, I love the movie. Like I said, I discovered Aliens before I discovered Alien. Um... The tagline, in space, no one can hear you scream. I was erroneously told that was the tagline to Aliens as a child. Watched it. It did, It never scared me. Unlike next week's movie, I was never in any way, shape, or form scared of Aliens. I was fascinated by this whole franchise. It's had such a tremendous impact on me that I have had dreams where I am a colonial marine... With a unit, we get stuck, and other friends of mine, other people that I know that I care about, are in these dreams and coming back to save us because they will not leave us behind. That, that is how much of an impact this franchise has had on me personally. And I'm not even the biggest Alien fan I know. Like I said, that is Cal the Kaiju guy, and I can't wait. Um, the next non-movie that we do, or that I do rather, because I've got the next... Three weeks of movies planned out on what I'm going to be doing. One of which will air while I'm actually in Florida with my family going to Disney. Which I cannot wait to take my daughter to Disney, but I digress. Um, I've got the next three weeks of what movies I'll be doing planned out. And then I'll be doing my next actor showcase, which will be on a, uh, Jim Carrey. And I'll be joined by a friend of mine who's a podcaster who's got his own podcast about kung fu movies named Caleb. He's the biggest Jim Carrey fan I know. Look, I can quote a lot of Jim Carrey movies and a lot of roles. That man can quote them better than I can, and that's not common for me to come across that. However, after I do the uh, actor showcase on Jim Carrey, the next Rewind Review will be on Alien and Aliens, which I will be joined on that one, and I can't wait for that one. I I'm starting to ramble. I'm sorry about that. I... Uh, I'm going to go ahead and end it here because of that. I don't want to do that. Uh, this was Aliens. There's so much more. I really do feel like I only scratched the surface a bit on this, so I really am looking forward to the Rewind review on Alien and Aliens because we're going to talk about it a lot more. Um, next week, 
This the movie I'm going to be doing next week is one of two movies in my life that have profoundly scared me. And while I will never do the second movie, which is Little Nemo's Adventures in Slumberland, I don't care if you make fun of me for that. I will never, ever, ever watch that movie again. I'll never talk about that one. However, this next week, we're going to be talking about a movie that I refused to keep a copy of in my home until I was 28 years old. And I had not seen it since 1996 when I finally watched it, and it still freaks me out. Even though I am not what you would call a religious person, this movie still just, it doesn't sit right with me, and it never has. If you haven't figured it out, next week we're going to be talking about The Exorcist. I am both looking forward to and not looking forward to that episode. I will probably watch The Exorcist once my daughter goes to bed uh, tomorrow night. And I'll begin my notes for it then. That movie, there's a lot that went into that one as well. So I hope you'll enjoy it. I hope you enjoyed hearing me rant a little bit about Aliens as well as going through the general production of it. Um, I look forward to getting to discuss it again at a later time. I look forward to my next episode, and I hope you do too. So, again, this was Aliens. Next week, The Exorcist. I am Kid Kong. I will see you at the movies.